Well, good morning on the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm here with Blake Baston, a good friend of mine and somebody I think you're going to really enjoy having on the podcast. Blake, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. So welcome, first of all, to the So We Speak podcast. I know that you have uh, been a reader, but you've also been a contributor. That's what most people don't really know. Anytime I have a big finance question, whether it's the Weekly Speak or a blog or something like that, you're the first person I email. So you've been a shadow contributor for a while now. You are definitely the first pastor I've ever known who understands the fundamentals of the copper market worldwide. (laughs) So so yeah, I'm happy to help. Awesome job you guys are doing. Uh, Glad to be a part of it. Oh, thanks, man. I'm I'm really excited to get to talk about your story a little bit, get to talk about your journey into the church. And, um, you know, one of the things that's really cool when you work at a church or, or even if you don't, but probably you have a front row seat when you work at a church is how God brings different people into the roles that they're in. And I think your transition from the business world to the church world is one of the best I've ever heard. And so I just wanted to give you an opportunity here at the beginning to talk about what was it that got you to crossings? It was kind of a circuitous route, but uh, so let's start with you. Growing up in Oklahoma City, you're an all-star athlete. Um, you've, uh, <laughs> There's too many people here who know me and know that's not true. <laughs> yeah, on, t- on top of the sporting world, and then you decide to uh, forego your athletic career to go into the world of business. Take us maybe from that point and, and bring us up to the present. Yeah, I, I went to OU, got a jo- uh, got double major accounting and finance. Uh, I never liked accounting, but I knew it was just one of those majors. It was easy to get a job entry-level into accounting. And so moved down to Houston two days after I graduated from OU into the oil and gas business as an entry-level accountant. Um, Moved into an economist role there, business planning role. Uh, Had a really good, just kind of early professional career in the oil and gas market. Just timed the market perfectly. I mean, Mm -hmm. I had 20 years ahead of me as people were retiring left and right from just the doldrums of the oil and gas industry. And then the shale boom was occurring. So I just timed it perfectly. And and got promoted in ways that probably wouldn't normally have happened if mm-hmm. I'd entered the market 10 years ago or 10 years before. And so got to do some really fun um, kind of corporate finance jobs, uh, operational jobs, moved over to an Australian-based company, the world's largest mining company, uh, which eventually you know found me you know, in Melbourne, Australia, uh, uh-huh. working over there, and just a blast. And, and so I got to, you know, in my career, learn from some of the most incredible people you could imagine. Just my last boss, the CFO of this company, was just a brilliant, brilliant man mm-hmm. and um, learned a lot from him. So so I kind of did the whole corporate finance thing for, for a, a, a while, and then God just you know got a hold of me. I think in that same time frame where I'm talking about my professional career, uh, everything was going really well from a worldly life standpoint. I had a great wife who I love, uh, two beautiful kids, uh, decent home, you know, the, you know, living the American slash Australian dream. The Australian, the dream. Australian yeah. dream, uh, <laughs> the Australian dream without the cool accent. And, uh-huh. and but at the same time, my faith journey was probably dwindling. You know, my mm-hmm. uh, what was, you know, my walk with Christ, which was a very important part of my life in middle school and high school, just slowly faded away. And never would have thought that I, you know, kind of stopped believing in God or anything like that. But there was no nothing in my life that actually was showing any evidence of, the, of that type of fruit. Yeah, and you see that a lot when when you think about. Um, obviously, the statistics are really high, and, and we could probably argue about why they're as high as they are. About going from religious high school student to uh, early in your career young professional, faith is almost non-existent in you know really large numbers. And 
you know, one of the things that's kind of surprising is it often doesn't happen because of challenges or intellectual doubts, although those, those do occur. Most of the time, it's a result of success, it seems like. So what what is it about graduating from college, having early success, you know, getting an MBA, you moving basically on the career path that you probably envisioned or, or at least one better than you envisioned? What are the corrosive effects of success in the in the young adult life that lead people away from faith? Oh, I mean it was I mean it was a fun identity to have, right? I mean you're that young guy who's kind of conquering the business world, so to speak. Yeah. And and it was easy for me to just build my identity into that. And I even kind of knew it was happening too, which was which mm-hmm. was a bit odd. Uh, and I loved it. I mean my, my job was kind of who I was and and you know people knew I was doing well and I didn't mind that. And, and it was. I mean, you kind of look at that and you, you have that worldly success and it's kind of like, okay, hey, everything's going fine. You know, why, why do I need anything different here? Yeah. And, and I think for me, you know, I didn't really have any of those spiritual disciplines or the means of grace, as Cliff may say, right, mm-hmm. that, that were in my life that would keep me anchored through all the different movements I was making. I was living a very transient lifestyle, so to speak. I mean, I kind of in and out through college, went, went to college really quickly, you know, was kind of... When I moved down to Houston, we moved to a couple of different spots in Houston because my company kept telling me we we're going to be moving international. And, right. and so we, we never really felt settled. And I used that, I think, as an excuse not to go get into a church body and, and do that. And then on my own, I'm not really doing anything there to kind of build that spiritual discipline up. Uh, and then on the back of it, I'm, I'm sitting there going, hey, life's going pretty well. You know, right. It, it's, uh, let's not screw this up. Yeah. It's interesting that I think we've all probably felt this, but... There's this quote from Bonhoeffer that always sticks in my head that, you know, the devil doesn't need you to hate God. He's fine if you just forget about God altogether. Mm-hmm. And that's really the, su- the, the, the subtle allure of success is not that you would decide in your own mind, like, well, I'm God, and so I don't need God anymore. Although that's what your actions might say. Yep. Nobody really thinks that. Instead, you just forget that you need God at all. And so when you get to Australia and you're working, if that's the background context, you had this awakening, yep. almost like the need that had been there the entire time came into focus. What what was that like? It did. I think I think my time in Houston, I was there for about 10 years. I think the last couple of years I was in Houston, I probably started feeling just this kind of internal guilt almost. Like I knew God was blessing my life in ways that I never could have imagined. I was just looking at these two kids I had, and they just seemed like little miracles, you know. And, mm-hmm. and I knew that I was being provided for and taken care of, and so I almost felt this guilt that I just wasn't living up to what I knew I needed to be doing. And and so it just started with the Word, right? I mean, mm-hmm. my, my wife, of all people, came home and said, you're going to do a Bible study with me, <laughs> right? And normally when my wife says something, I listen. You know, yeah. she, she's, she's pretty astute. And, and so, you know, it's as simple as going from not knowing where your Bible is in your house to just going and finding it and dusting it off and starting to open it mm-hmm. and reading what it says with a, with a you know, fresh set of eyes and, and, and then answering all those questions that you had when you were in high school that you probably didn't really dive into. Yeah. I, mean, I remember buying a systematic theology textbook and just going through it. And I didn't even know what the, you know, what the emphasis of the, the, the theology was, but I'm like, I just yeah. I have questions. And so I just started doing it myself. And all this kind of led to this time, you know, paralleled whenever I finally moved to Australia and I just knew that I just needed to get into a church, right? I mm-hmm. knew that God spoke to you through his church and found this beautiful old um, Presbyterian church right across the street from my office. And it was one mm-hmm. of the very first buildings ever constructed in Melbourne. And, you know, built in 1831, you know, 
I walk in the church doors and, you know, I'm two standard deviations outside of the age demographic of this church. It's my, my kids made up 100% of the children's ministry type uh-huh. church, yeah. uh, but they were there and they were faithful. And so I had the associate pastor of that church, a guy named Richard O'Brien, just took me under his wing. And, you know, I came to him and kind of told him where I was in my walk with Christ and, and that I was needing some direction. And, and he just said, all right, you know, and he got me involved in a men's group, you know, with four other guys. We met on Wednesday mornings and started going through some text. And I just got to see these men who had taken their faith so seriously in a culture that does not take Mm -hmm. um, faith seriously. I got to just sit there and absorb their wisdom and ask them questions. And and it got me just reading the word in a way that I had never done before. And I I remember getting to Leviticus, you know, one day, Mm -hmm. just going through it. And I remember going to my pastor going, you need to explain this or I'm walking away from all of this. Yeah. This, is, this, this is not cool. You know, this is not the God that I sang about growing right, up. Right, exactly. And he goes, you know, look, he's saying, I am holy, so you need to be holy. Yeah. And just, I remember, I'll never forget that conversation we had. And, and every time I had those little moments of just, okay, you know, I'm struggling with this. He was there. He was a faithful pastor that just, you know, took care of me and, and mm-hmm. taught me God's word in a beautiful, beautiful way. And so I'll never, it's, it's funny that God made me go all the way to Australia uh, in the center of a city that has really forgotten about him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was a man there who was faithful, who played just such an important part of my life. Yeah. The, one of the things I love about that story is you in that season of your life were like a pastor's dream. I mean, like you can sit around in ministry and pray and hope for five years for a guy like you who is interested in his faith, who's reading who's seeking, and then you come along beside that person. I mean, that is just, I'll never forget the advice that Andy Roshkov gave me when I became a youth pastor for the for the first time. He said, your expectations are that you're going to have conversations with people every day about God that are going to be meaningful and that, that are going to be beneficial. He's like, but probably in the span of your first semester, you'll have one really good conversation. And that was true. You, I mean, I probably had one kid that I felt like was really, really on fire. And there were several other conversations that were meaningful, you know, five years later or 10 years later, but in the moment, maybe just one conversation where I felt like, oh, wow, this is, this is really making an impact. And so from that standpoint, I feel like a guy like you at that season of your life, I mean, God was obviously doing something for a pastor like him to see that is a really exciting thing. But on the other hand, as a pastor, sometimes it's hard to know what to do with a person like that. Like what, I mean, you don't want to squash their growth. You don't, I mean, you want to continue what God's doing, but sometimes you have no idea. Like, keep reading. That seems yep. like pretty bad advice, but sometimes that's what's necessary. So when you encounter this guy, like you said, not really alike in any way, not denominationally similar in your backgrounds, not similar in your upbringing, you were born in different continents of, of the world. What was it about him as a pastor that was engaging and helpful for you growing as a new believer? You know, I remember just walking into his office and seeing his library, and his library was just, it looked like a fake family library, <laughs> right? And and it was it was just, I remember it was just walking in beautiful, and I'm looking at all these books, and every time we'd have a conversation, he goes, oh, I remember this, and he'd go and grab a book, and he would, he would quote an article from the book, and, and so I just, I looked at him, and I said, this man is intelligent, he is faithful, um, he was also a, a guy who early in his career was a, a business guy. Hmm. Right? And so I related a little bit to that. You know, yeah. He had made a move over. 
Um, and, and he just took a genuine interest in what I did outside the church world, too. Mm. I mean, the company I worked for was by far the largest company in Australia, and so everybody knew them. Yeah. And so when I would come in and would start talking about different things going on on the job, different things, he, he just he really wanted to know. He loved it. He loved hearing about it. So we could have, you know, kind of like you and I do, we could have economics conversations mm-hmm. as well as theology conversations. Yeah. And so we, we, had a, we just built a good relationship, even though he was many, many, many years my senior. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he did the old school pastor thing, right? I mean, he came to our apartment and had dinner with my family. Right. And he and I went out for coffee. And, and I, I think about him a lot because you, know, you look at that guy and he, wasn't even the, he didn't even preach in the church, right? Mm-hmm. He didn't have a TV station. He didn't have you know, millions of people listen to him. But he was a faithful pastor. You never know how God blesses just faithful actions. Um, so I think you know he he just uh, took the time and, and paid attention and got me hooked in with other men who were re- really influential. Yeah. In a time that I was just a sponge, you know, and and so I think you know you come out of that that you're in that season, and you just had some interesting things happen in life where um, my family ends up moving back to the U.S. for a while uh, mm-hmm. as we're kind of waiting on my next assignment to pop up somewhere else in the world. Right. And so they, they move into a house here in the U.S. and kind of leave me in alone, alone in Australia as I'm you know just waiting for the next assignment to pop up in Chile or Singapore or London, wherever it may be. Yeah. And so I had all this time alone, and I remember this conversation I had with God once where I told him, Look, I can't spend time with you because I've got my kids. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm really trying hard to take care, good care of my kids. And it was like this a bit of epiphany of, hey, they're all gone. You know, yeah. what are you going to do now? Yeah. And so I just, you know, picked up the word and read in a way I've never read before. I mean, just got all the way through the Bible in a short amount of time, answered all the questions, you know, I needed answered. Um, and I remember God just speaking to me in a way that was very, very simple and clear. I feel like every single text I read was just saying the same thing over and over. It was, you need to humble yourself. You need to trust in my ways, not your ways. You need to follow me, not the world. And you need to be still and know that I am God. Yeah. Right? Every story was telling me the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, okay, look, I got it. I'm, I'm going to you know, get off my yeah. high horse a little bit. Right. Because I still thought I was a pretty big deal you know, yeah. at the time. Uh, you know, and, and so that was just a, a good season of just immersing myself in, in the Word and in prayer uh, just to prepare me for whatever was coming. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things I really admire about that guy is, and I, maybe this is maybe this is more true in Australian culture than it is in American culture. That that probably is is true. But I also think in places where the church is not playing the prominent role that it does in America, and especially where it doesn't have a socially acceptable veneer like we do, uh, you get the freedom in those places to develop this inner strength and especially, I mean, is a, a Presbyterian small church sounds like very traditional. Um, I, I mean, I don't think this guy's probably reading the latest books from Zondervan. I think he's probably reading the Puritans and, oh, yeah. you know, all the, the, the heroes of the faith. If you, Calvin didn't write it, he may not he, he didn't want to read it. it. So. When, you, when you surround yourself with voices like that, you have the ability to develop this inner fortitude that makes for really good pastoring. And I think the opposites probably that I see are in America, there's the, there's the seduction of fame and prominence and cultural power. But it's a, it's a disembodied cultural power. So if you're a celebrity pastor, or even if you're just a celebrity pastor in your, in your own community, one of the things that you want is widespread uh, acclaim. You want a lot of people to know who you are. Yep. But one of the things I see in this guy is he thought that 
that pastoring meant knowing really intimately who you were. And that's just a fundamentally different way of seeing pastoral ministry. And at least the things that, you know, on the one hand, you would say, what an absolute failure. I mean, he discipled, you know, one guy. You yep. know, I mean, like, were they even interested in becoming a mega church? You know, like, but at the same time, when you think about the way that the, the Bible portrays discipleship, him coming to your home, him talking to you about things that were important to you, him taking the time to answer questions. I mean, like all of those things come from a place where you can see his goal was to know you well, to pastor you well. And I wonder how, I wonder how you transfer that into kind of an American evangelical low church context because there are necessities in running a church that that mean that not every pastor on staff gets to spend time doing that but the biblical mandate doesn't change so if you were to look at your life now and I want to talk a little bit about how you got to crossings and all that but like if you're to look at your life right now what are the parts of your pastoral identity that you think were most shaped by spending time with him I, I do think, just to the point you're making, I, I try very hard never to allow myself to get outside of the personal relationships that I'm developing. Mm-hmm. And it's where where God puts me in the little pockets in this church to, to pastor. It's find the people, get to know the people, follow up with the people, uh, really, really engage them well. Uh, I've got the business side of what I do uh, is, is a job that needs to be done. The pastoral side of what I get to do you know, because I'm not over any one specific ministry or that, I get to go find the people God puts in my in my life mm-hmm. and go be like a small church pastor to them to a certain right. extent. And I love that. And and I think it's it's um it's I feel a lot of freedom in that too. And and so you just you just you know, you watch what he did. You know, he he did. He he cared about what I cared about. He taught me well. He never sugarcoated uh, the word of God to me. He explained yeah. it well. And I remember being in a conversation here at our church you know, a few months back uh, where someone was coming just needing prayer and they were just having a horrible, horrible time, right? Just, I mean, going through things that I've never had to go through before. And all they wanted me to say was that, you know, if you pray a little bit harder, God's going to take this pain away. Mm. And that's all they wanted me to say, I could tell. And I remember, I remember just thinking, you know, that's not what I'm here to do. Mm-hmm. I'm here to explain God's word to you and yeah. what it really means to carry out his will. And, and I think back to that conversation he, he and I had. We had a conversation about Job one time because like, I was just struggling with Job. Yeah, and as we do. As we, everyone ought to struggle with Job. Yeah. If you don't struggle with Job, you're not reading the text deeply enough. But you think about it, he, just, he revealed God's word to me, the authentic word of God. Yeah. And, and I look at what God is now doing to that couple that I talked to. And they have taken the, the, the advice, right, just like I gave them, you know, get absorbed in the Word uh, in this church and see what God will reveal through that, not pray, pray harder. Right, yeah, which is an easy piece of advice to give. It's a very easy piece of advice. So, so you know, it's, it's nice being able to see, you know, I think you have to see how a small church functions mm-hmm. to know when you do get into a large church, which I think you mentioned on the podcast a while back, a lot of these large churches didn't ever mean to become large churches. Yeah, yeah. You got, you got to, you, you have to make sure that you don't lose track of the fundamentals. Right. Uh, and so if you, you can watch how it operates in a small church, how the pastors go and tend to those who, you know, care for the flock. Mm-hmm. You've got to make sure that as you get larger and you have to scale up, that you yeah. don't actually let people fall through the cracks. Right. I mean, we, we discussed this before, but it's, it's worth repeating. There are pros and cons in big churches and small churches. They just happen to be different. Yep. And uh, some of them are the same. Human nature is the same. 
you just have more of it in a big church, which sometimes can be problematic. But uh, you're closer to it in a small church a lot of the times. Yep. But obviously, I'm a fan of big churches, and um, I think though there's something to be said that the world will be changed by small churches and small church pastors in communities one at a time, people one at a time, and um, mega churches do an amazing job of promoting that when they're when they're healthy and. Um, enabling leaders and reaching big groups of people. And so it, it's a team win. But I just love the the strain of your background that you couldn't have gotten anywhere else. I mean, just God took you to the perfect place. It just happened to be Australia. Yep. And he showed up. He made your need apparent. And then he fulfilled it, which is what he does. And he did all of that to bring you back maybe 10 miles from where you grew up. So... Your family moves back to the U.S. You're in Australia kind of waiting for the next career move. You've really got the plum job that anybody your age and could want. And then what happened? Yeah, I mean, I, I had my dream job. I mean, I really did. I had one of those jobs So, like in the corporate world. People are throwing knives at each other to get. And uh-huh. it was just, you know, not to be arrogant or anything. It was just, it was a great, great role. And pretty much what I did, I was the chief of staff for the CFO. And so it's a grooming position. So mm-hmm. if, you, if you do well, you've just made your career. Right. right. And, and I had done all right and, and had a great uh, relationship with my boss and, and was working on organizational planning for the next roles and everything. It was coming soon. And my wife came back to visit me in Australia for a week uh, just to spend some time with me. And I remember just as she was packing up her bags to go back home, Mm -hmm. I just was so sad. It was like this moment of weakness. I was just so sad that she was leaving. Uh, I hadn't seen the kids in a couple of months. And and like in this just sheer moment, I just picked up my phone and I go, I wonder if there's any interesting jobs in Oklahoma City. (laughs) And I I didn't want a job in Oklahoma City. I didn't want any other job. I love my career. Uh, but I was just sad. And and the first job that pops up on the list and the only one I looked at is this role that I'm doing right now at Crossings. And, uh-huh. and it was just an interesting circumstance in that I had just gotten back from a wedding that one of the elders of this church had officiated for my uh, sister-in-law. And I had seen this church be the church in a time of need to my extended family. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andy Roshkob was the very first person at my sister-in-law's door whenever her mother passed away. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I had seen... Um, uh, elders of this church take take them in and just really care for them, and I was a cynic. I was I was a big church cynic. I mean, I, yeah. I'm in this small church in Australia where all we do we talk about you know you know reform theology, uh, the evil of America, right. and everything <laughs> in our men's group, and 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 so I'm, I'm I've just become a cynic of the large church, and but I saw God actually working in this church. And the job popped up. I was like, that's an interesting circumstance. And so I prayed about it and and submitted my resume to the head of HR here and, and said, look, I don't want this job. Uh, uh-huh. and, and I know he's going to look crazy because my resume says I live in Australia, which I do. Yeah. But, but hey, I'm going to be you know in town for Easter. I wouldn't mind yeah. just talking to you guys. And sure. So I got to have a really good conversation with senior pastor, executive pastor, HR. And, and I shared with them just my faith journey, where I was. And I remember have, saying, look, I, I don't know if God's wanting me to do anything in ministry or, or with the church, but I do know that I'm trying to get mature enough in my faith that if he did ask me to make a radical life change, I would be, you know, courageous enough to say yes to it, even if that meant that I'm giving up worldly success. But at that point in time, I was not ready. I mean, I, I, I did not think, had they offered me the job on day one, I would have said no. 
And but it gave me time. I went back to Australia as they were looking for candidates and interviewing, and and spent about three or four months just in daily prayer, like agonizing prayer, uh, studying the Word, just just trying to hear from God what He wanted in my life. Mm-hmm. And I, every as every day passed, I became more and more certain that He was really calling me to to come and join the church from a vocational side. But I kept wanting him to say no. Like I, yeah. I, the more and more I came, I became convicted that, he, that that's what was being asked of me. I was just trying to find some reason that I didn't need to go do this because yeah. I knew I knew people were going to just call me crazy. I I did not want to give up the money. Honestly, I didn't want to. I, I love traveling the world. Yeah, I didn't want to give that up. Uh, there was like this laundry list of things I'd planned out my career trajectory. Everything was going exactly according to my plan. I did not want to change that. And. But I remember being in a service the Sunday before I flew back here to kind of talk to the elders of the church and the preacher. And I'm just praying for guidance in this service, right, that, that God would just help me make it clear. And if he made it clear, I was going to just make the leap. Yeah. And I remember the uh, preacher started talking about Matthias, right? Mm-hmm. Of all people, Matthias. Yeah. And he's talking about how to trust a faithful church process. And it was the most boring sermon I've ever heard in my life. It was an awful, awful sermon. But he starts talking about, about you know, how the early church decided to choose their new leadership. And especially they're, they're making a decision about who should be the next treasurer of the early church, right? Right. And so he starts going through all the requirements for the early church and eventually, you know, how they chose Matthias. And that, you know, they had to trust it was, it was of God, given the decision process they went through. And so I start reading through the book of Acts as fast as I can to uh-huh. figure out how Matthias determined whether or not he was going to accept the call. Right. And I remember it hit me that, you know, the church was asking him to do something for God, mm-hmm. right? He had no choice but to follow. And in that verse, Jesus says, where, you know, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Just yeah. just hit me hard and, and saying, look, if, if I knew God was asking me to make a change and I said no to that, how could I consider myself a follower of Christ at this point in time? Right. And it became black and white at that point in time. They said, "All right, let's 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 make the leap," and and moved over and um, just left the career behind and got to have some incredible conversations on uh, you know coming out the door in Australia oh, sure. with a lot of people going, "You know, are you crazy?" Yeah, you know, and and I'm still having gospel oriented conversations with people in Australia to this day. Them trying to understand why I made this change, uh-huh. which is great, and who knows what God will do with that. Um, but been over here now and just. You know, I've loved every moment of it. It's been challenging, of mm-hmm. course, uh, but but very happy to you know be faithfully serving mm-hmm. this time in my life. So now that you're in full time ministry and you're doing a role that is, like you said earlier, a little bit pastoral, a lot operations, yep. business. First of all, tell us a little bit about what you do at the church. Yeah. So my job, I tell everyone I try to run all the God-enabling functions, right, or the ministry-enabling functions. So I manage our finance team, the overall kind of think about what a CFO would do in any organization, uh, and then all of our operations, so facilities, security, technology, communications. Um, I'm sure I'm, I'm leaving one of those out around there, the yeah. grounds management. Anything we do around here just to keep the church up and going, right. uh, allow the pastors to go be pastors. That's what I really try to do is is let's, let's try to let the pastor spend all their time doing what we just talked about, that small church pastoring side, mm-hmm. right? Let them go do that, not worry about all the administrative side uh, of the large church, right? Because right. that can become overwhelming. Oh, it can. And, and it's something that, that uh, 
you know, most people, if you, if you come into ministry through seminary or you come out of a church, you go to college, you really loved your youth group. And so you become a pastor. You don't get any training to do any of that stuff. In fact, you're probably one of the least qualified people to do the operational side of the church. And a lot of pastors have to learn that, you know, I wish, um, I really wish there were some MBA style classes taught in seminary or even just some like intro level. Like I, for one, graduated college without taking a single business class. Yeah. I'd be happy if we could just take a class on how to do an expense report. Exactly. I mean, I'd be be really happy with that. Yeah. And so you come into this and a lot of pastors just are not equipped and they're, and, and honestly not wired to take care of a lot of the operational side of the church. And so your whole suite of ministries that you oversee aren't the ones we typically think of as ministry per se, but are the ones that actually enable the ministry to happen, especially at a bigger church. You can't do ministry unless these things get done. And then there's the added pressure of they need to be done well. It's a stewardship question. You know, if we're going to take people's tithes and offerings and invest them into the kingdom of God, you know, we want to be wise and shrewd and, and we want to be legal in the way that we actually do it. And so there's a lot that goes in there that you wouldn't necessarily think of as ministry, but is essential for ministry to happen. But on the flip side of that, you probably don't get to spend a lot of time sitting in your office, reading your Bible and praying every day in the office. So how do you find time to grow in your job working at a church? You know, the, the, the one one of the good things about working in the church is is that I do have flexibility in my time, much more flexibility than I had in the business world. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the fact that my work life and my personal life with my family being in the church and at our school and different things, I'm pretty much always here, right? I mean, right. It, it's one yeah. of those things that the, the blur between business and personal is just gone at this point in time. But what, what comes with that, the opportunity that comes with that, is you can pick and choose your times to go get engaged mm-hmm. in different activities. Uh, but for me personally, it, it's I, I think I learned through my experience over the last few years, just as I was kind of going on this kind of accelerated growth track of my yeah. understanding of the Word of God, was that one of the reasons I had fallen away from my walk with Christ was because I hadn't actually embedded any good routines mm-hmm. in my life. And so I, I'm very strict on making sure that I keep those routines in place right now. Yeah. And they're still not as good as I would like them to be, but they constantly improve. And so that's, that's you know, how, how you start your day in prayer. That's, uh, for me in particular, it's how I spend my evenings. That's, that's when I spend the most time with God. Everyone in my house goes to bed, and it's me and God, you know, pretty mm-hmm. much in my bedroom, just going through the Word right. and going through prayer. And, and I've made sure not to lose that. And then during the day and during the week here at the church, I've tried to pick times uh, throughout the week where I can go get involved in community, go get involved in studies that will, one, benefit me in my continual development, but also where I can serve in different capacities through it. So, you know, I've got a men's Bible study I do on Wednesday that my original intention of that was just to get my dad and and I in a study together. Right. And what's come out of that has been something incredible with men Mm -hmm. uh, in the church. Uh, I've got a Thursday deal that I do uh, at the community center where I'm having to teach. Yeah. And, and I'm teaching people who, you know, half are, are in a church, half aren't in a church, and, and people from a very different background uh, than where I come out of. And then I've got a Thursday lunch that I do with a couple, uh, with a few men who the original intention of that was to try to keep some accountability for a couple of my family members. Yeah. But that's turned into something really incredible. And then I do something on Sunday evenings with my wife where mm-hmm. her and I can do something together uh, with a group. So we've 
we've picked up different times throughout the week where I can engage in the Word at all times, but also mm-hmm. do them for some specific fellowship slash service opportunities. Yeah. Um, and I think those well. rhythms are, are really important. And one of the things I've learned from you, I remember you telling me that one of the things you were most excited about working at Crossings and working now in a church is being able to take advantage of the church. Oh, yeah. you know, so we offer a lot of great things as a church, but most of the time the leaders are the ones who don't get to benefit because they're the ones facilitating it. But you know what you've done, and, and I think this is really wise, is you've you've kind of looked up and been like, hey, we got a lot of really good stuff going yeah. here. Why shouldn't I get some of the benefit of that? Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, getting to go to the different Bible studies and service opportunities and stuff, I think, is is wise. And, and the unfortunate thing is a lot of times the leaders, and this is just the hazard of having that personality that wants to jump mm-hmm. in and help, almost reap the least amount of benefit from the things that they're contributing to. Yep. I mean, like on a Sunday morning, for example, if you're working on a Sunday morning, it's really, really difficult to get much out of the service. And that's not an excuse, but it is kind of a mandate that you have to find other times to get fed. And I think you've done a great job in that. And I would just take that as an encouragement, like it's been for me to everybody else. Like if you're a leader, that doesn't mean that you're exempt from just participating in Bible studies, in services, in worship, um, in sitting in submission under the word of God. Um, So just to, to, to wrap this up on growth, if you're going to look back, if you would give advice to your business self from where you are now and what you know, or to anybody listening who um, is working, they're not working at a church, but they're really interested in growing in their faith, what would be your best advice to them? Uh, I think, honestly, you, you have to do the simplest thing first, and that is make sure you are spending time daily in the Word. As simple as that sounds, I think that's the thing that we just most easily get wrong. Um, you just don't pick up that rhythm of actually reading the Bible for yourself. And, and I and I know it's when I tell that to pastors on staff here a lot, it's kind of like, well, we'll dub like, well, in the business world, I, I could have, you know, picked out maybe one person in a 30,000 person organization that I was working in that was reading the Bible on a daily basis. Right. And so do the simple things first. Read the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, it will actually tell you things, right? It's amazing how God did it. <laughs> it was, it was like you. a supernatural deal where he put this together for us. So let's take advantage of it. So I think just you know, keeping it simple, getting in the Word, stay in a church body, and allow God to work through that body. Uh, I, I remember the, the feeling that I had each day when I got to my job was just it was going to be 10, 12 hours of nonstop pain, right? I mean, just, I mean, it was, I mean, especially in a commodities business, you are always close to death, right? I mean, you always are. And, and so I remember the pressure of the business world and not that the church world doesn't have pressure. It's just a different type. Mm -hmm. The business world had a lot of pressure and if you allowed it, it will consume you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so you see a lot of companies now trying to go to more flex work schedules and different things to allow people to continue to parent in a business yeah. world. But I think you have to just set your priorities and remember mm-hmm. that your life cannot be, you know, your life cannot be completely identified by your job because it will fail at some point in time. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's one thing the commodities business taught me a lot. It's not a if something's ever going to happen. It's a win that you eventually get burned by the commodities business. Mm-hmm. It will fail you. Um, your life has to be defined by Christ, right? And then as people, if you were to allow people to look into your life and look at the time you spend and and where your heart is, you have to see the evidence of that. And so stay in the Word, stay in a church, stay just involved in an actual local church body, do the simple things well. 
Um, I, I used to always make the excuse, right, whenever I was in the business world that I couldn't get involved in a church because, you know, I traveled a lot for business and, and um, you know, Sunday mornings were really difficult. Sometimes I had to close the books, you know, it was right. all the excuses in the world we can make, we made, mm-hmm. uh, but I still found time to watch SportsCenter every day, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I always had time to watch SportsCenter. <laughs> so I, I think that would be the practical side. And then on just kind of like one thing that technology has now allowed that I just love is there's no excuse not to get fed now on a daily basis. Yeah. I had an hour and 15-minute commute in Houston each way. Well, can you imagine what you can get through on podcasts now oh, in an man. hour and 15 minutes each way? Yeah. I mean, I feel I feel just ashamed of myself for how much ESPN radio I listened to for a decade. <laughs> but that's when, they had, that's when they still had Mike and Mike. Yeah, Mike so and Mike in the morning. It. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was worth it. Then, it was but, worth it at that point. But I just, I just, I, I almost, I, I wish I could go back to the 25-year-old version of Blake mm-hmm. and just, you know, say, you know, listen to, you know, you could learn Greek over the next two years yeah. if you wanted to. Uh, but, but it's, you know, look, my priorities weren't in that place. So my, mm-hmm. my identity was my job. And so, you know, doing the simple things right, you know, uh, using technology to your advantage. There's no reason now that guys can't really stay absorbed in the word. Uh, there's just no reason why we can't do it. Okay, so you knew this was coming. Every time we have somebody on this podcast, my favorite thing to do is ask you about your desert island books. So if you are going to a desert island, and the one thing I just always clarify is this you're not being marooned on this island. You're being sent there for an all-expenses-paid primitive vacation on this island. And so um, you have a nice little cabana that you get to stay in. and you have all the time in the world, all, all your amenities, that kind of thing. So there's no no need to bring like sh- a shipbuilder book or anything like that or try to get rescued. You're just there for an indefinite amount of time on this desert island, and you get to take five books or a series of books. And at this point, the library is pretty well stocked there. So, um, you know, the life works of pretty much anybody you can think of worth reading are there. Bibles are there. There's several copies of Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter that have been left there. Um, <laughs> which I may just leave in the cabinet. Not, right, not yeah, yet. which you may not touch yeah, anyway. Yeah. Uh, what five books would you take to your desert island? Uh, I, I love this experiment. So I'm probably going to break the mold you know, on, on the people you've interviewed on this. There's no Tolkien. There's no Harry Potter. We need, we need some bread. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's one of those deals. You know, I just uh, Apparently, I was doing other things in high school and college whenever I should have yeah. been reading those books. So... Uh, I'm going to start with Knowing God by J.I. Packer, and that was Knowing God was the book that my pastor in Australia took me through in depth, right? Mm-hmm. And and so it was just such an instrumental part of my faith, uh, and I love that book. I love unpacking Packer, as we used to yes. say all the time, and it, you know it's bread and butter theology. Um, second one, another bread and butter uh, theological book. I would do Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul, mm-hmm. just because it. That book always haunts me, especially the beginning of it as yeah. he's talking about his experience. And I think if you're on a desert island, you need to be reminded of who God is a little bit, especially if you get a little too complacent with the you know, nice breeze and everything. That's true. Um, third book, I would probably do uh, Brothers uh, Karamazov, um, however the Russian pronunciation is of that by <laughs> Dostoevsky. I love that book. It's one of those that if you're going to be on an island for a long time, you could read that book 10 times and have a just exhilarating experience through it each yeah. and every time. 
um, and maybe I could pick up some Russian, you know, along yeah. the way. Yeah, my experience, I have just one experience with Russian literature. It was my senior year of high school. I was reading Crime and Punishment in the summer. And that was enough Russian literature probably for me for the rest of my life. But yeah. I have this guilt, you know, because being a Christian and not reading The Brothers K. Yep. That it's one of those that's like you should have read this book by now, but I haven't. Yeah. But what is it about that book that you think is kind of essential reading? Well, you know what I love. The, the brothers are all distinct personalities, right? And they all come come at the entire novel from completely different perspectives, uh, different worldviews, uh, so mm-hmm. to speak. And the conversation that uh, Ivan or Ivan, you know, however you want to say it, has with Alyosha, you know, who's mm-hmm. really you know the the main Christian character in, in the book, is just fantastic. And and I love that I love that the debate that those two were having and how just you know passionate you know Ivan was in his attack of Christianity, mm-hmm. right? That was that true back when Dostoevsky wrote it now, or wrote then, just as true today. I mean, yeah. the in the fact that God never changed throughout that entire time period, right? And the same defense that was being given then works today. Yeah. And it's just, it was it beautifully articulated as Dostoevsky does. So that was really cool. Um, but then just Dostoevsky will, will, will pour into details that you think really don't matter mm-hmm. all throughout his novels. And then they, they always come back up and it just gives it such a rich flavor. And I find I, I find his books difficult to read, mm-hmm. um, which seems to be all I'm reading now because I'm, I'm taking <laughs> recommendations from you and your dad. Uh, so everything I'm reading is pretty difficult, but but especially his books are difficult to read. But when you get done with it, you feel like you've really accomplished something. Oh too, yeah, so. I bet. There's nothing like finishing a gigantic book. Be like, I read all, that. I read every page of that. And I've always admired again from a distance when it comes to Dostoevsky. But there's a lot of authors like this, and this is where you get the appeal of fiction as an enterprise for the Christian life is Christianity has always been a religion that admires um, theology through portraiture. Mm -hmm. And so you don't have to write a theological text to get something theological out of it. I mean, examinations of human behavior and the state of a, a particular culture, decisions that people make, the internal thoughts, I think is one of the things that Dostoevsky is really good about, is walking you through the humanity of a decision. I mean, that's what crime and punishment really is about. It's like 800 pages of one decision, you know, and then thinking about it for, oh, yeah. you know, 799 pages. And then you mean half conscious, you know, for right. a quarter of the book. and Like there's know. something beautiful about that and there's something instructive about it. And I know in, in the Brothers K that the way that he orchestrates the conversations and the dialogue, it takes a pretty fantastic mind to be able to write from four or five interesting perspectives instead of one. Oh yeah, and then and then be able to pick up the the, the color of the monastery, right? Uh-huh. And then you read about what was going on in Dostoevsky's life as he wrote that. I mean, his three year old, I think it was his three year old son, had just passed away. Uh, someone's named Alyosha. So you so you see mm. you see the the main character really. I, I wonder whether or not had his son not passed away, if Alyosha would have been such the hero that he was yeah. in the book. And so you, you get all that background behind it, and and what the critics were saying about Dostoevsky at the time that he was writing this, and you, you understand the history of the book itself. I don't know. It just it makes for a very rich read. Yeah, that would good, be a good, good one. Book. Like you said, you could read that one multiple times on yeah. the on the desert island. Make it frustrated a little bit during the read, but you know it'd be yeah, it'd you be a just fun pick one. up knowing God at that point. Yeah, pick up knowing so. God a little bit easier. Uh, <laughs> then then I've got to go the most in, 
the most fun I've ever had reading a book, and I and I know it was the most fun because of how many times I've read this book, uh-huh. is Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas oh, Adams. Oh, yeah. I love Hitchhiker's Guide. For some reason, the humor in that book just resonates with me. It's a very dry humor. It's almost yeah. like watching a Coen Brothers film. You know, it's, <laughs> it's just really, really good stuff. And, and I figure, you know, from for any Hitchhiker's Guide Hitchhiker's fans out there, you know, the whole theme of don't panic, mm-hmm. you know, I, I feel like would be a necessity on the desert island, yeah. even though I know it's supposed to be like a vacation you right. know, island. But it's still a little bit. Of, still did, little so bit did you see the movie? The movie was horrible. I okay. watched 10 minutes of it and turned it off. Yeah. And it was just, okay. I mean, it made me sad. Yeah. Honestly, it made me really sad. So you're a movie. true fan. You are no, a true, the, genuine fan. The text was good. The the movie, not worth watching. Please, you know, you, you would actually... You know, you'd probably think much less of me if you watch the movie and know that I recommended this book. Yeah. Well, there's no there's no uh, TV on this desert island anyway. So there's no can't, TV. Can't bring the movie, even if you wanted to. But the text is great. I mean, just the, at the very beginning, you know, just how, you know, pokes fun at government bureaucracy is, is just, it's great humor. Great uh-huh. humor. You're either going to love it or you're going to hate it. It's kind of like watching The Big Lebowski. You're either going to love it or yeah. you're going to hate it. And, <laughs> and if you hate it, I'm, I'm really just not that interested in talking about Yeah, come on. Talking about much else. So. You've lost all credibility <laughs> in my book. Yeah. So, last one's got to be just a, another classic is To Kill a Mockingbird by mm. Harper, Harper Lee. Uh, I love one that Harper never wrote, never published another book. Mm-hmm. And I still I contest the, the one that came out right, shortly after right. the death. Um, but I, I think we should all find our hero in Atticus to a certain extent. Oh, yeah. And I love, I love uh, that book. I could read it so many times. I cannot wait till my kids have to read that yes. book so we can work through it together. You know, I, I think I saw this maybe a week or two ago. It was voted the number one American novel of all time. Yeah. As it and ought to be. Isn't it cool to that? I, I don't know when, I mean, I guess I'm far enough removed from this. I can't remember, but maybe... When do you read that book in school? Fifth grade, sixth grade? I don't know I mean, when it's it is. Pretty early in school that you read that book, and it's and the fact that it's still insightful enough and and dense enough in maybe 200, 250 pages yeah. max to have that kind of impact. I mean, it really is a great American novel. It has all the the sense of justice and the rights to be yeah. defended and honor and integrity. I mean. Plus, you just love Scout. Oh yeah. I mean, just, there's there's a, she's a great character. It's it's a fun read, and you know you you do you, you you take so many lessons away from it. I remember having a conversation with my old boss in Australia, who was just, I mean, this guy grew up the son of a British diplomat. You know, I mean, he's he's as high British right as you can imagine, and and he's like, there's no good American novelist, right? <laughs> and it's like Trump card, Harper Lee, right? Yeah, and, exactly. And, 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 and you can't say anything about it after right. that. So, so it's just a good, good book, and I, I just love, I love this that I can't beat that, so I'm mm-hmm. not even going to try. Right. right. That's so cool. That's, that is cool. That's really, that's really neat. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.